0: may say a prayer for us. Dear Father, we love you. We are so thankful for what an incredible God that you are. We are uh, just so thankful that you are a God we can turn to and we can count on, and that we are called children of you. Help us, encourage us, strengthen us, I pray. I fiercely with all that I am, Father, ask that you open up something right and new and good in our hearts. We love you and trust you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We had an awesome day yesterday our mental health addiction awareness day we had so many people come out it was an awesome experience we have so many resources available for the community so thank you for everybody who was here if you didn't get a chance to come there are still so many resources available we would love 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 to share with you Um, in 1935 alcoholics anonymous came into being and its center had a man named bill wilson Bill was a recovering alcoholic, and he'd been helped by a childhood friend and a group of Christian movement known as the Oxford Group. It's interesting because in 1935, he was struggling to stay sober. And at the time, he was introduced to a man named Dr. Bob Smith here in Akron, Ohio. And not long after that trip, after they met, the two worked together to found the um, core of what AA is today. And they took what they'd learned and what they practiced and used it to start helping other people. Groups started in New York City, in Cleveland. And in 1939, they published their big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And in the book, they explained their philosophy, the methods they've been practicing, and what they called the 12 steps of recovery now it's interesting because here we are and today aa is estimated to be about in 180 nations across the world and this work has had an impact on so many people's lives the 12 steps allowed people who had been ruined or drowning in addiction to find health and recovery now it's interesting because if you're not part of a group like this maybe you haven't heard these steps before at the core these 12 steps sound like this the first step is we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. The second step was that we came to believe a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. The third step was we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. The fourth was we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Fifth, we admitted to God, to ourselves, to another human being, The exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we were entirely ready to have God remove all of these defects of character. Seven, we humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, we made a list of all of the persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends. Nine, we made direct amends to such people wherever possible except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, we continued to take a personal inventory and when we were wrong, we promptly admitted it. Eleven, we sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. And these steps, groups of people for all of these years have been practicing and working together. Now, it's interesting because a Franciscan priest named Richard Rohr was moved by the spiritual connection of the 12 steps. And he wrote a book based on a series of talks that he'd given called Breathing Under Water. And his idea in this book is that we all suffer from unhealthy dependencies. And we're constantly turning to these dependencies in hopes that it's going to finally make life feel better. He said, but again and again, we find not only don't we feel better, we feel worse than we did before. This is what he said. We are all spiritually powerless. However, not just those who are physically addicted to a substance, which is why I write this book to everyone. He said, alcoholics simply have their powerlessness visible for all to see, The rest of us disguise it in different ways and overcompensate for our more hidden and subtle addictions and attachments, especially our addiction to our own way of thinking. He said we're all addicted to our own habitual way of doing things, our own defenses, and most especially our patterned way of thinking, how we press into our reality. He said we cannot heal what we don't first acknowledge. So in this book, it's so interesting because he weaves together the 12 steps into a path for healthy growth in our faith and how we do life. And we're going to kind of look at the 12 steps and weave that into spiritual growth in our life over the next coming weeks. Anne Lamott, it's interesting, in my version of the book, she does a foreword on it. And she said um, something that's been said by many other people, that the first three steps of the 12 are known as a three-step waltz. I can't. God can, I think I'll let God. And I love that line. Like, that's such a powerful sentence to memorize and practice into life. She said, I'm powerless over people, places, things. I'm unable to save or fix or rescue anyone, including myself. But God can through the movement of grace in our life. The tricky part about this line, the sentence is, we don't like to admit what we're powerless over. We don't like to admit that we aren't in control of everything, right? We have this like can-do attitude and we can do more and try harder. And it's hard to admit in life when things are beyond us, when the situation isn't working and we keep trying to do more and more of the same, somehow expecting things to work out differently. And Richard Rohr said, letting go is not in anybody's program for happiness, yet all mature spirituality in one sense or another is about letting go and unlearning. He said, what the ego hates more than anything else in the world is to change, even when the present situation is not working or is horrible. Instead, we do more and more of what doesn't work. The reason we do anything one more time is because the last time didn't really satisfy us deeply. So the first step for us towards healthy growth in faith is this sentence that if you can write it down, this is a mantra we can all practice and all think about. I can't. God can. I think I'll let God. Now, it's interesting because Jesus tells us a story in the Gospel of Luke that brings this idea so powerfully to life. Jesus has a series of stories that he weaves together in Luke chapter 15. In the last story, he says, There was a man who had two sons there was an older son and a younger son. And the story begins with the younger son. This younger son came to a point in life where he didn't want to be home anymore, he wanted to get away from it all, he wanted to do his own thing. And so he went up to his dad and basically said, I know one day you're going to die, and when you die, you're going to leave me something. Rather than waiting for that time, could you just leave it to me now so I can take it with me, go, and do what I want to do? Which would be insulting to anybody, but especially in this patriarchal culture. So the dad gives him his inheritance early. And the son packs his bag, takes his stuff, takes his money, he's like, that's it, I'm out, I'm gonna have a better life, I'm gonna do what I want. He moves to the big city, he does all the things he wants to do. Do you ever watch the movie Big with Tom Hanks? Remember, he's like the kid and he grows up big overnight and he gets that apartment in the city and he like does all of the things that a kid wished they could do, right? If they had their own apartment and he eats all the junk food and buys the bunk beds and plays the games. We all had these pictures, like, if I could just have my freedom, I could do what I want. And so the younger son, he goes big. He doesn't hold back. He buys all the things. He does all the things he could never do, probably more than he should have. He chases down every single thing he thinks will make him happy. And then he runs out of money because this lifestyle is expensive to afford. And the people who were there while he was living it up, spending big, are gone the money goes, and then disaster comes to the city. Everything becomes scarce. Jobs are scarce. Food is scarce. And when he can't find any other options, he finds a job feeding pigs, barely making anything. It gets so bad that Jesus tells us he comes to the point where he's feeding slop to pigs, and it looks appealing. He finds himself with literally nothing. He's starving. He's miserable. There's nobody to help. And at this moment in his life, he hits absolute bottom. Nothing could be worse than this. Looking at pig slap looks appealing to him. And what he thought would make him so happy in his life leaves him feeling miserable what he thought he could do on his own, without help, without family, leaves him all alone and at a point in his life where it isn't working. And he has this turning point. He has this rock-bottom moment where he realizes, I can't, but somebody else can. And Jesus tells us in this moment, in this turning point, he realizes his dad can help. He thinks about the world around where his dad is and the employees that his dad has and how much better they are off than he is. Even the lowest employee that his dad has is doing better than himself. And so he has the thought that says, maybe I can go back home. I I can't pay back what I took from my dad. I've lost even the rights or the worthiness to be called his child, his son, but maybe I could just work for him so that life could be better than it is right now. So he works it out, he practices it. Have you ever had to say you're sorry before and you have like no ground to stand on? And he's like, this is where he's at. He has no leg to stand on, but he's trying to think, how could I just say the right thing to my dad if I could just even work for you, that would be enough. So Jesus says, he heads back to his dad, and this is what... Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 15, verse 20, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, Bring the best robes and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and killed it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This is one of the most remarkable, beautiful stories that Jesus tells because it helps illustrate to us what we cannot understand about the heart of God every time we find ourselves in a pig's mess of life and we think it can't get worse than this, what we expect from God is so vastly different than what we get. The son didn't get anger or condemnation or hatred or shame. Not even a harsh word fell from the father's lips. He got joy and love and mercy. And Jesus tells us this story so we can see how God responds to us. I love, remember the words of Dane Ortland. He said, Jesus isn't trigger happy. He's not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He's the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him, it's not a pointed finger, but opened arms. For all his respondent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness, otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. No prerequisites, no hoops to jump through. The minimum bar to be folded into the embrace of Jesus is simply, open yourself up to him. It's all he needs. Says you don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. No payment is required. He says, I will give you rest. He doesn't get flustered and frustrated when we come to him for fresh forgiveness, for renewed pardon with distress and need and emptiness. That's the whole point. It's what he came to heal. Jesus doesn't throw his arms up in the air when he engages sinners, he is calm tender, soothing, restrained, he deals with us gently. See, we think when we finally like reach that turning point and say, I can't, but God can, we got to like take our dues, right? It's like being sent to the principal's office. I did the wrong thing. I got to take my punishment. I got to like get through the process. But when we come to Jesus Christ, what we find is is open arms. We find welcome. We find a joyful heart. Just simply saying, I can't, but you can, that's it. There's no hoops. There's no prerequisites. Christ has a heart that is for us. And when we finally admit, I cannot do this on my own, we find a God who has eternally been for us. We find a dad who's waiting for us, open-armed, ready to embrace us. This younger son's life had become unmanageable. Everything he thought would work didn't. Life only got better when he had this turning point moment and said, I can't. And he stopped trying to do it on his own. And friends, the sad truth for many of us, for most of us, is it's not until life becomes unmanageable that we're willing to admit, I can't. Because we just think, I can, I can do more, I can try harder, I can work harder, I can cover this up, I can do less of this and more than this. And not until a situation happens that we can't control or a conflict we can't deal with, not until we're sitting in the middle of a pig's mess, do we finally admit, I need help, I cannot do this on my own when life confronts us with loss and hurt and pain and damage or out-of-control impulses we can't fix our own, these are the very moments God delights in meeting us. He's not exasperated or annoyed that he has to. It's the very reason Christ is here to help us. When we admit, I can't, but God can, that's the turning point moment where god does his best work in our hearts and in our lives on the other hand when our impulses are leading in our life and our decisions are directed by them our life is unmanageable we're always controlled by what's going on around us by our emotions our needs our selfishness our wrong thinking problem is it never leads us to a satisfied heart We're always chasing more. We're always chasing one more to feel better, to finally be happy, and one more. What's the song? I'm not even a country person. One more is one too many, and one more is never enough. Because what we think will make us happy only leaves us feeling worse. And so in our own lives, every one of us need to have this moment where we say, I cannot do this on my own, only with the help of God. Life isn't working. We're not happy. We're not satisfied. We aren't as free as we thought we could be. We're instead controlled by fear and wrong impulses and wrong thinking. But when we say, I can't, God can, I think I'll let God, what we find is a God who's really good at caring for us, A a God we can trust in who will not let us down a God whose care is healthy and good and nurturing for our heart and for our souls, we find a God who can heal us and restore us and redeem us and direct us back in the way we should go. For many of us, it's time to say to God, I can't. (laughs) I've been trying too long to do this on my own, and it's not working. I've gotten it wrong. I've messed it up. The emptiness, the shame, the guilt they aren't the end. They aren't the barrier. They are the very starting place where Christ can show up and do his loving, gracious work in our lives. The grace of God is always greater than our sin. So the question becomes, where in my life do I need to admit I've been trying to do this on my own and isn't working? See, we get good at compartmentalizing, right? Like, especially, like, if you've already given your life to Christ or said yes to Christ, you think, like, okay, this part of my life is working. This part of my life, God, I got this. Don't worry about it here. And we section ourselves off, and that's not how— God doesn't want pieces. He wants all of us to do his best work in. Where do we need to say, God, I need your help in this place, in this time, in this area of my heart? God, I can't, but you can. God, if you would be gracious here, everything— could change. What's waiting for us on the other side of surrender is a God who is loving and merciful, who is willing and ready to help. But what's interesting is that Jesus tells a story about two sons. The younger son story, we're familiar with it. Some of us have lived it 15 times over. We've heard it before. We're like, yeah, crazy wild living. Everybody's got to try it once. But so many times we miss the story of the older son. The older son stayed home. He didn't run off. He didn't insult his dad. He, he didn't do the crazy wild thing. He didn't do what his younger son, the younger son had done. And so when he's out working like he's always done, he hears the noise and he hears people talking and celebrating and he asks a servant like, what's going on here? And he hears about the return of his younger brother. And unlike the dad, he's not excited. He's not filled with joy. He's not ready to throw a party. He's furious. He's not going to join in like everybody else and just forget what his brother had done. So he won't go into the party. He won't connect with his family. He won't go where everybody is. And when the father sees him standing outside, he goes and begs him to come in and be with them. But the older son refused. He says, look, verse 29, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You've never given me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not my family, not my brother, this son of yours, isn't that how it works in a family? When we're annoyed, it's not my relationship, it's your relationship. This son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home. You kill the fattened calf for him. Dad, the dad here, he, he could have said so many things to his son, right? Like, parents, he could have said so many things. He could have, like, any way, but listen to what he says. He said, my son, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brothers of your, brother of yours was dead, and he's alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. Now, it's easy in our lives to see where we've been the younger son, right? Where we're like, I got this. I can do this on my own. I don't need any help. I'm going to try it my own way. we've, We've chased after these things. It's harder to see where we've been the older son. But Jesus tells us this story of both sons because he wants us to see both of them moved away from the dad. Both of them rejected the father in different ways. The younger son rejected him in this crazy, wild, leave me alone. I want to do everything on my own, my way. But the older son did it in a very different way. He became angry and filled with pride. He was hardened and cynical, and it was about doing the right thing, and the rules, and all of the rights, and the wrongs, and fairness, and the same thing happens to us. It's easy to get hidden behind religious good works and a false sense of self. If I'm doing the right thing then they should have to do the right thing too, right? Especially in a family. There's like a fair economics that we argue. I don't know whoever taught us that, but it's like at the core of who we are. In a family it has to be fair. If this is expected of me, it should be expected of them and how dare they do anything less. And in our own life righteousness and pride They don't just take hold of us. They take hold of a relationship to God. Instead of saying, God, I love you, this is how I'm going to express it in my life, we're saying, God, you owe me. I I did the right thing. I'm the good kid here. I never messed up. I didn't do what they did. I didn't do this bad or this bad. I did these right things. There's no kindness, no gentleness, no mercy, but we do the right thing. Darn it. And God now needs to do what I expect him to do problem is we get this manipulative relationship with God, and we miss all the ugliness that lives inside of our hearts. Everything on the outside gets cleaned up. Life is in order. We're doing the right thing, but anger and resentment are eating away at our hearts. Righteousness has now become our way to hurt and squash people, and we think we're doing the right thing. That's the hardest part about it. It's so wrapped up in religiosity and doing the right things and good things over bad things that we make them ultimate things and our lives become corrosive. But we think, I love God, I'm doing the right thing. You obviously are a bad person. God just needs to keep up his end of the bargain. I'll do my part. And inside, it's a mess. The religious exterior hides the heart that isn't healthy or whole. Our lives become unmanageable. It's just harder to see because it's wrapped up in a religious exterior that's polished nicely, that says the right holy things. But surrender here is just as necessary as it is for the younger son. One more time, Richard War said, surrender will always feel like dying, yet it's the necessary path to liberation. It takes Each of us a long time to just accept, accept what is, accept ourselves, others, the past, our own mistakes, and the imperfection and idiosyncrasies of almost everything. The ego will always prefer an economy of merit and sacrifice to an economy of grace and unearned love where we have no control. Listen to how powerful this is. When it's about merit and sacrifice, I'm in control. I'm saying to God, I merited this, I earned this, I sacrificed this. When it's about grace and unearned love, I'm handing over the control to God and saying, I can't, but you can. When it's about merit and sacrifice, I have the power, it's in my hands and what I do. When it's about grace and unearned love, it's wholly in the hands of God. I love, somebody, something has to break our primary addiction, which is to our own power and our own false programs for happiness. We think both ways wrongly. And this is where God meets us. Not by our power, not by our might, not by our spiritual goodness are any of us saved, but only by the sheer generosity, grace, and love of Jesus Christ. This can be harder to challenge than the other. If keeping, this is so hard, but please hear me. If keeping the rules were enough, if just doing more of the right thing was enough, we wouldn't have needed Jesus Christ to come into the world and be God with us. Another prophet could have come along and said, hey, let me just help you see these rules better. Or another teacher could have come along with a new analogy to show us how to keep doing better. But by the works of the law has no one been saved the law the rules only ever existed to show us where we come up short just how much we need help because nobody can be perfect all the time we all fall short i can't save myself i love god fiercely and want to be his girl but i mess up because we all do that is the human nature that we live i can't do it on my own none of us can If we are the problem, we can't also be the solution. We need something beyond ourselves, greater than ourselves, which is why God said, I will step into the story of your history and be God with you. And Christ came in to do what we could never do on our own. He didn't send another prophet, another teacher. He stepped into our story to do life with us because it was the only way that things could change. Only Christ. Timothy Keller wrote this beautiful little book called *The Prodigal God*, and it's on this story in Luke chapter 15 that Jesus tells. It's powerful. It's a little book if you want to read it. He says nearly everyone defines sin as a breaking a list of rules. Jesus shows us that a man who has violated virtually nothing on the list of moral misbehaviors can be every bit as lost as the most profligate immoral person, because sin isn't just the breaking of rules. It's putting yourself in the place of God, Savior, Lord, and Judge. So Jesus didn't divide the world into the moral good guys and the immoral bad guys, right? We like duality. That's, that's a God we create. It's good and it's bad, it's uh, right and wrong. That's our nature. But Christ shows us everyone is dedicated to a project of self salvation, to using God and others in order to get power and control from ourselves. We are just going about it in different ways said, even though both sons are wrong, the father cares for them and invites them both back into his love and his feast. This is where Christ shows us the greatest understanding we have at the heart of God. When the father sees the younger son, what does he do? He runs towards him. This was so inappropriate in this culture to pick up your robes, to run out like that. It wasn't behavior, right? You didn't act irreverent this way. But that's how much the dad's heart is for his kid, and it's God's heart for us. He doesn't wait for us to get life figured out and working and perfect. He doesn't even wait for us to realize, I can't, he can. He already moved towards us. All of it. God says, before you even knew I existed or that you needed me, the plan was in place that you might know You are loved, valued because of Jesus Christ. The most powerful idea about this, it's not just for the things I have done, but all of it, the good, the bad, the things that haven't happened yet, the messes I haven't created, the bad choices, the waste. God knows it all. And still, Christ came into the world to give his life that we might live. Right in the middle of our messes, Christ dies for us. But even the older son, when his heart is angry and bitter and hard, when he wouldn't step foot into the party, look, the father goes to him. He doesn't stop inviting him in. The tragedy of the story is the younger son has a turning point. The older son doesn't. He doesn't have the moment where he's like, oh, but the younger son does. But look it, the father doesn't stop inviting him in. God doesn't give up on us. He never stops reaching out and inviting us into a life with him. When we get angry and hardened and bitter, God is loving and gracious and good. Our anger isn't saving us, our wrong thinking isn't saving us, and none of these things are satisfying us the way that we thought they should. Instead, what we can't do on our own, God can, and he delights in helping us, loving us, and it is the exact best time to try, to hand over our whole self to Him, our whole heart, our whole lives, our minds, our bodies, all of it, so He can do His very best work. Right where we are drowning, God sends rescue to help deliverance. He's good at it, He's better at it than any of us could ever be. And He promises that when we have this moment, He is there, and we will find a fullness of life, a promise we can count on, a faith we can build our lives on that we could not ever have any other way. Dear Father, I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would speak truth into our hearts today. I pray, Father, wherever we have chosen to try and do this on our own, we would admit, God, we can't, but you can. I pray that you would give us the courage to let you try. I pray, Father, that we would stop resisting and trying to do this either with our anger and our bitterness or our crazy whatever we think will make us happy. I pray instead, Father, that we would turn to you, open our hearts to you, and admit we need you more than we need anything else. Help us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.